to the Sorrel and Roots podcast, cultivating deep discipleship in community. I'm Brian Fisher. This is episode six, Total Eclipse of the Heart. Some time ago, a pastor friend of mine referred me to a book called The Critical Journey, the first edition of which was published back in the 80s. If you like systematic theology or a meaningful Bible study, this is not the book for you. It's more of a sociological perspective about our spiritual formation versus a biblical exposition. We've been exploring what Dallas Willard called the great omission, the fact that modern Christianity talks about making disciples but rarely does it. The great omission has had a horrible impact on culture, and it's caused all sorts of issues in the church. On an individual level, it shows up as a sense of disconnection. We wonder if there should be more to the Christian life than what we typically experience. The Bible promises a life of peace, of inner stability. It suggests our lives should be characterized by us doing greater things than Jesus did. That seems to make at least some rational sense. After all, God himself does live in us. Here at Soil and Roots, we're diving into the great omission from a somewhat unique perspective that we aren't taught or trained to explore the hidden ideas that govern and empower us. If discipleship can be defined as the progressive transformation of dark ideas to light ideas, we should probably learn how to identify these ideas in the culture and the church, as well as ourselves. There are times in our lives where some sort of crisis just shakes us up, and our church services and our Bible studies may not answer some of the questions with which our hearts are wrestling. Our intellectual belief systems sustain us when things are going well, but we wonder if there is something beneath those belief systems when tragedy or disruption inevitably visits us. We may find some greater clarity about this great omission, this longing for the deeper end of discipleship, by evaluating what Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulich proposed in their book, The Critical Journey. They suggest that our journey of spiritual formation can be broken down into six stages. Stage one is a recognition of God. This is when we become aware of God or perhaps become a Christian. They call stage two the life of discipleship. Frankly, I wish the others had chosen a different name for this stage because they basically mean a time of simply learning. We come to know God and then we take time to get to know more about him. So this entails things like Bible study and lectures, classes, maybe being mentored and so on. Stage three is what they call the productive life. This is when we start to give back. We begin to serve. Maybe it's through volunteering at church or working in the nursery or mentoring others or going on missions trips. We know God, we know more about God, and now we're ready to share God with others through a myriad of opportunities. So far, we recognize these three phases. Many of our stories involve us coming to Christ, joining a community of faith, learning more about him, and then taking on more of a serving role in some capacity. When I first read the book, I wondered what phases might be beyond these first three. I sort of thought the first three was all there was. Stage four is called the inward journey. Quote, it almost always comes as an unsettling experience, yet results in healing for those who continue through it. Until now, our journey has had an external dimension to it. Our life of faith was more visible, more outwardly oriented, even though things certainly were happening inside us. At this stage, we face abrupt change to almost the opposite mode. It's a mode of questioning, exploring, falling apart, doubting, dancing around the real issues, sinking in uncertainty, and indulging in self-centeredness, end quote. Somewhere in stage four is what they call the wall. St. John of the Cross called this type of experience the dark night of the soul. Quote, the wall represents the place where another layer of transformation occurs, and a renewed life of faith begins 
for those who feel called and have the courage to move into it. This experience is perhaps the most poignant example of mystery in the whole journey of the faith. Experiencing the wall is both frightening and unpredictable, end quote. They cite some biblical examples of the wall, Jonah in the belly of the whale, Job in the middle of his illness, Elijah when he hid in the cave, and Sarah being barren for so long and finally giving up and giving Hannah to her husband. The wall is often brought on by some sort of crisis, a job loss, a cancer diagnosis, a death in the family, divorce, betrayal, a move, wondering if our career or our ministry or our perspective is valid or right or honoring. When we hit the wall, we have a few options. We may press into it and engage in the struggle and the introspection it brings, or we may turn back and settle into a previous stage because we just aren't willing to dig beneath the surface. In some cases, a person simply abandons the faith altogether. They deconstruct. The wall is a pivotal part of our journey because it often causes us to revisit the truths and the ideas we assumed when we were younger. And we discover God in new ways. We experience him more deeply, and that draws us into a more trusting relationship with him. We learn to surrender. After the wall comes stage five, which they call the journey outward, and stage six is the life of love. Their description of someone in stage six, this life of love, sounds somewhat paradoxical. Quote, at this stage, we reflect God to others in a world more clearly and consistently than we ever thought possible. When we are at stage six, we have lost ourselves in the equation. And at the same time, we have truly found ourselves. We are selfless. This factor allows us to do the most extraordinary things. We may figuratively wash other people's feet or give our very lives in the service of God. We are at peace with ourselves, fully conscious of being the person God has created us to be. Obedience comes very naturally without deliberation because we are so immersed in God's work. End quote. They list other characteristics, wisdom gained from life struggles, compassionate living for others, including our enemies, detachment from things and stress. They make the case that someone living in stage six may appear strange to the rest of us. They aren't trying to perform or accumulate much of anything. They may appear slow. They're so unconcerned with things that concern us, we aren't quite sure what to do with them. The book also claims that Western Christian institutions are really well suited for stages one, two, and three. They introduce us to God, they provide plenty of opportunities to learn about him, and are ready to plug us into serving God in lots of ways. The problem is, very few churches are set up to help guide us into stages four, five, six, and the wall. We find little help with the inward journey and the outward journey and living a life of love. I network with several pastors from various denominations, and I've yet to find one that disagrees with this conclusion. So far, every church leader I've discussed this with acknowledges that our modern institutions aren't aware of and aren't particularly interested in these deeper stages of discipleship. When I ask why, one former pastor put it rather bluntly. Quote, because churches can raise enough money on stages one, two, and three. The later stages require a substantial commitment to the individual, and it's a lot of work, end quote. You may or may not agree with how the authors present stages of discipleship, though if we accept the general outline, it does provide some clarity to the great omission. If the purpose of our spiritual formation is to become more like Jesus, and that process requires these latter stages, most of us don't even know that they're part of the journey because our churches don't guide us through them, that actually might explain a lot. 
In the language we've been using, this progressive transformation of ideas may well take place, at least in some part, in these latter stages. But if we don't choose to move through the wall, we may never come to embrace the need to mine our hearts for these hidden assumptions. We miss the deep end of discipleship. The purpose of Season 1 is to help us get our arms around this great omission and this description of discipleship as the transformation of ideas. By episode 14, we'll pivot into answering the next important question. How do we uncover these hidden ideas in our hearts? But for now, let's continue to practice identifying certain ideas that form us and their impact on our hearts and our families and our communities. The folks at the Colson Center and Breakpoint often say that ideas have consequences, bad ideas have victims. We see this victimization occur when God's original good ideas become distorted or corrupted. And we've been exploring ideas of anthropology, what it means to be human. The center, the core of who we are, is our hearts or our spirits. However, we live in an age that assumes our formation is largely about only the mind. But there's a vast difference between information and formation. Another crucial idea of the kingdom of light is that we are unified, integrated creatures. The on-being human picture on the website shows that there is a direct, intimate relationship between the heart, the mind, the body, and the soul. In addition to the word integrated, I think we could also consider the word indivisible, not able to be divided up. Our heart, our mind, our body are all woven together without division in the context of our soul. And this is key. Any impact on one of our dimensions impacts them all. Nancy Piercy wrote a powerful book called Love Thy Body. You'll note she uses the terms body and soul a little differently than we do here. She uses soul to refer to our invisible dimensions and body to refer to our visible dimensions. She's discussing a modern-day theory called personhood, but listen carefully to how she talks about human beings as unified. Quote, Christianity holds that body and soul together form an integrated unit, that the human being is an embodied soul. By contrast, personhood theory entails a two-level dualism that sets the body against the person, as though they were two separate things merely stuck together. As a result, it demeans the body as extrinsic to the person, something inferior that can be used for purely pragmatic purposes." Piercy is rightfully claiming that many people function from an idea that they are, in fact, parts stuck together. They just aren't conscious of it. She writes, quote, Descartes is best known for his famous phrase, I think, therefore I am. In that phrase, he located authentic human identity in the mind alone. The implication is that the body is not an aspect of the true self. Instead, the body is a mechanism that services the needs and desires of the mind, the pilot of a ship or the driver of a car. Philosopher Daniel Dannett explains, Since Descartes in the 17th century, we've had a vision of the self as sort of an immaterial ghost that owns and controls a body the way you own and control your car, end quote. This is tremendously important for us to understand. Why do we have such a horror and aversion to death? Because we aren't meant to be disintegrated. We aren't meant to come apart for our spiritual dimensions to be split from our physical ones. We're designed to be indivisible, not divided. Now, the kingdom of darkness promotes a distorted, very different idea of anthropology. The kingdom of darkness strongly promotes the idea that we are disintegrated, that we are the sum of various parts. 
So we can satisfy the desires of our hearts through the body or through the mind. That we can basically disassociate parts of ourselves without any consequence to the rest of us. So when we embrace the idea that our deepest desires can be met through our bodies or minds without impacting the rest of us, we quickly head off the rails. Very simple example is found in the current culture of sex. Let's say a Christian man is sleeping around. The typical response is to remind him that sleeping around is a sin and perhaps pair him up with an accountability partner. Maybe that works, maybe it doesn't. But what's going on beneath the surface? This man is sinning, but is this just a behavior of his body that has no ties to his heart, to his nature as a spiritual creature? To rightfully call his behavior a sin without looking beneath the surface to explore the desires of his heart does him a disservice. There may be several things going on there, but one is that he has a distorted idea or assumption of anthropology. His heart has legitimate good desires for closeness, for intimacy, to be known. We all desire to be known. His heart is yearning for good things. However, he's attempting to disintegrate himself. He believes his desire to be known can be satisfied through his body without any impact on his mind or his heart. In some cases, his heart has been broken. Maybe through his childhood, maybe through betrayal or other harm, and so he basically scrambles to satisfy his spiritual desires through his body to cover up the pain and anger in his heart. And sleeping around works about as well as any other attempt to numb the heart's pain. It provides temporary fake relief with no lasting fulfillment. In this case, he drags the women he sleeps with down with him, and he harms himself and them in an attempt to fix his own broken desires. When I said that the ideas of darkness are designed to kill us, just consider that bad ideas of anthropology related to sex alone result in one in five people in the U.S. experiencing a sexually transmitted disease on any given day. It costs around $16 billion a year to treat them. The body is most certainly a necessary and vital part of our spiritual formation. We're unified beings. But our bodies cannot complete spiritual fulfillment. In fact, in Christianity, we practice depriving the body. We call it fasting. We purposefully deny the body its desires for a period of time and dive into our hearts, reminding ourselves that spiritual formation is centered in our spirits. Is the mind important and essential to spiritual formation? Yes, Romans 12.2 says we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let's just make sure we note Romans 12.1. We are to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is our spiritual service of worship. Spiritual meaning of the heart in our core. Paul reminds us in these two verses that we are integrated, body, mind, and spirit. Just like the body does and must integrate with the spirit in our formation, so also the mind does and must integrate with the spirit in our formation. Jonathan Edwards wrote about the necessary role of the mind in the transformation of the heart. He said, quote, All truth is given by revelation, either general or special, and it must be received by reason. Reason is the God-given means for discovering the truth that God discloses, whether in his world or in his word. While God wants to reach the heart with truth, he does not bypass the mind, end quote. I suspect that's why you're listening to this podcast or reading the blog. Our minds are engaged with the assumption that our hearts will be impacted. But is it possible to have hundreds of Bible verses memorized, a brilliant systematic theology, the world's most accurate doctrine, and still be a jackwagon? Sure. There are far too many stories of amazing theologians and teachers who are ill-tempered, deeply insecure, power-hungry people. 
Is it possible to have hundreds of Bible verses memorized, a brilliant systematic theology, the world's most accurate doctrine, and still have a heart that embraces ideas of darkness contrary to what is being preached and taught? Again, yes. I'm not going to name names, but there have been many Christian leaders over the past few years who have unfortunately made the news for all of the wrong reasons. Authors, apologists, megachurch leaders, writers, musicians, speakers, publicly teaching, affirming, and promoting the ideas of the kingdom while their hearts were embracing entirely different ideas. Our minds can espouse all sorts of biblical truth while our hearts are entangled in ideas of darkness. In modern Christianity, we tend to read these types of unfortunate stories and just chalk it up to sin. Well, we're still sinners, we say to ourselves. While that's true, it's a surface answer that doesn't dive into the human heart to ask, why did we sin? We don't sin at random. We sin because we want something that the kingdom of darkness offers. Whether we sin in thought or word or behavior or relationship, what we do is tied to what we desire. That's why dismissing sin without investigating our hearts is so dangerous. We can be sorry, we can even claim repentance. But if we don't do the hard work of uncovering the ideas and desires that drive our behavior, we're just going to keep repeating the same sin over and over again. Sometimes these harmful ideas of anthropology can very quietly, very subtly show up right in the middle of modern Christianity. They aren't as plainly evident as a sex-saturated culture or some unfortunate public scandal involving an intelligent, charismatic Christian leader. When I was six years old, I remember lying in bed and having a conversation with God. I told God I really didn't want to go to hell when I died and I really wanted to go to heaven. So I became a Christian. When I was around 13, I was sitting in the back row of a Methodist church in Erie, Pennsylvania, listening to the presentation of the gospel by a man named Ray Zimmerman. His words hit me like lightning, and when he offered an altar call at the end of the service, I walked down the aisle, tears streaming down my face, knelt down, and repeated a prayer commonly known as the sinner's prayer. After a few minutes, I stood up from the altar and felt very meaningfully like a brand new person. In fact, I was. If you're not familiar with the sinner's prayer, also known as the prayer of salvation, it's a prayer offered to someone typically at the end of an evangelistic church service or maybe a one-on-one -on -one conversation about the gospel of salvation. A very short version goes like this. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I believe you died for my sins so I could be forgiven. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for coming into my life. Amen. Chances are, if you've been a Christian for a while, you may have prayed a sinner's prayer, or at least heard it offered at some point in person or maybe on a video. So here's an important question. How many people have become a Christian by repeating the sinner's prayer? The answer? None. I didn't become a Christian by repeating the sinner's prayer, just like I didn't become Brazilian by repeating Brazil's Pledge of Allegiance. So what does all this have to do with ideas of anthropology? Well, we need to be very careful that we don't presume that salvation is solely the work of our minds and our mouths. That we are saved because we said a prayer or provided some verbal affirmation of our belief. A little history here. The concept of the sinner's prayer developed in the 1700s by American revivalists and became codified and standardized in the 20th century by two American evangelists, Billy Sunday and Billy Graham. The sinner's prayer is an American tradition though it has spread worldwide, primarily through the influence of Graham and other evangelism organizations. So, the use of the sinner's prayer in modern evangelism is less than 100 years old. There are no examples of the sinner's prayer in Scripture. When Peter finished his first mass evangelism sermon in Acts 2, he didn't ask if anyone wanted to receive Jesus into their hearts, and he didn't lead him into prayer. 
In Acts 17, Paul makes a brilliant case for the gospel in Athens without even saying Jesus' name. Some people came to faith, but there's no evidence of a prayer of salvation. In personal conversations or public sermons, there are no biblical examples of a prayer being used to offer or indicate salvation. But Billy Graham's influence has been so profound that many evangelism training programs today contain instructions and points on how to offer the sinner's prayer. And it's widely seen as closing the deal. I've been trained on a few of these evangelism programs. Ray Comfort, an evangelist and YouTuber, doesn't use the sinner's prayer anymore in his efforts. In his book, God Has a Wonderful Plan for Your Life, The Myth of the Modern Message, he claims that 80 to 90% of people who make some sort of a profession of faith, like the sinner's prayer, fall away from the faith, meaning they were never truly converted in the first place. His concern is that to close the deal, modern Christianity is not actually preaching the full gospel of salvation. His concern is that to close the deal, modern Christianity is not actually preaching the full gospel of salvation. Rather, we're providing a few cursory facts from scripture and leading people in a prayer, and in some cases, consciously or unconsciously, leading them to believe the prayer itself saves them. That all they need to do is repeat some words like some sort of incantation. And while we're quick to share with people that Jesus died for their sins and they can have eternal life in heaven, we're not as quick to teach them repentance, the recognition of the weight and horror of our sin from which we are to turn. Christianity is often positioned, consciously or unconsciously, as fire insurance with no expectations on the insured. But a true disciple is a whole new creature with a whole new identity in a whole new kingdom at the moment we repent and believe. And although the price of our sins was certainly paid on the cross, the Christian life nonetheless does come with a price. In other words, are we running the risk of evangelizing based on an idea of anthropology that suggests we're converted by repeating a prayer or giving mental agreement to a set of facts, something the mind can easily do, without the transformation of the heart, in a deeper, fuller understanding of what the gospel actually is? A friend of mine came up to me after a Soil and Roots class where we discussed this, and she told me a story that illustrates the point. She had been following Jesus for many years when she got into a conversation with an older Christian woman whom she adored. When the older woman found out my friend had never prayed the sinner's prayer, she became visibly concerned and tried to pressure my friend to say it. She was concerned my friend wasn't actually saved because she had never repeated words from a script. Evidence of conversion may include a spoken prayer, but it may not. If we believe a person must pray or repeat some set of words to be converted, we have apparently nullified every conversion story in the New Testament. I mentioned that I wept as I walked down the aisle of my church when I was 13 years old. I wasn't weeping because I was glad Jesus saved me, although that came later. I was weeping because of the weight and despair of my sin came crashing down on me. I was sorry, terribly sorry, for the sins I had committed and realized I had no hope to save myself. I had to be rescued. I was desperate to be rescued. I recall saying a sinner's prayer, but I couldn't tell you what I said. But I do know, beyond a shadow of any doubt, that God did grant me repentance, and because of that, I accepted Jesus' invitation to place my faith in him, repentance and belief, in my heart. Is the use of the sinner's prayer or some sort of invitation bad? I'm not convinced of that. I think evangelism could take a lot of different forms, providing it properly explains and educates and clarifies repentance and belief. God is loving, and he is also holy. We can't properly share God's love and forgiveness without clearly explaining what we're being saved from. 
But if inviting someone to pray a prayer is not required to evangelize, and someone repeating a prayer is not necessarily evidence of conversion, why should we use it? It's a fair question and one that anyone concerned with the gospel should consider. Many churches, many organizations count prayers of salvation and report those numbers in their communications and their fundraising efforts. If we need to report numbers, we may consider reporting the number of disciples and not the number of converts. Someone might argue that we can't have disciples without first making converts. I think that's backwards. If 80 to 90% of the people who make a profession of faith aren't actually converted, we might have far more converts if we were far more intentional about making disciples. We should take care that we view evangelism through the correct ideas of anthropology. Is our intention to try to get a verbal profession from someone as an act of the mind, or take the time, energy, and effort to disciple people in hopes that they passionately, willfully, and comprehensively follow Jesus with their hearts? I think Greg Kokel sums this up rather well. He says, don't press someone to pray a prayer. Instead, encourage them to follow Jesus. When we emphasize deciding for Christ instead of living for him, we often get spiritual miscarriages instead of spiritual births. As we continue our journey into deep discipleship, mining our hearts to uncover the hidden ideas that form there, it's important that we even consider what it means to be human. We are, in fact, on a critical journey, one that involves us challenging our own assumptions and conclusions to determine if they align with those of our king. Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like more information on Soil and Roots, check out the website at soilandroots.org. You can sign up for our emails there, and if you feel led, donate to the work here. Feel free to drop us an email at fish at soilandroots.org, and we'll see you next time.